So welcome back. Uh, welcome back. This is the second uh, show of One on One with ANZ, um, which, as I said uh, last time, is a, a show that we are uh, starting and running weekly Mondays um, at this time to uh, uh, basically in the in the in the model of something Andy Grove used to do, uh, which in his in his in his era was a newspaper column in our area era clubhouse room. Um, and, uh, so we are going to, um, uh, read a bunch of questions proposed by, uh, uh, folks on Twitter. Um, and then we will answer them and then argue about the answers until, um, <laughs> probably around midnight. Um, uh, we, uh, I have to say that, uh, once again, uh, this week, uh, the quality of the questions is extraordinary. Um, so, uh, we have no shortage of great questions. We've picked out 11 of the best questions, um, and we're uh, queuing up all the others for, for future shows, but, I would say the, the, the questions are guaranteed to be fantastic, and then we'll 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 see about the answers. Um, so let's dump, uh, let's let's dive straight into the deep end of the pool, um, and let's start off with kind of the most serious of the questions, perhaps, and then kind of work our way, hopefully, up up a little bit in terms of cheerfulness. Uh, but this is a, a really, I think, important question and a, and a really profound question for for this year um, as sort of COVID drags on. So um, Ashley uh, asks, Ben says, "quote Layoffs break trust." Uh, a third of people in San Francisco have filed for unemployment, and a lot of that is tech companies having to restructure and scale back at the end of 2020 due to COVID struggles. How does Ben view the long-term traumatic impact of this period? Yeah, that's a great question. It actually reminds me <laughs> reminds me of my career during the dot-com bubble yeah. and a lot of layoffs and, and trauma in that sense. So that does have differences. So let me kind of start with um, just why... And it's obvious, but but I think it's subtle as well as why layoffs break trust. Because when you're a CEO, you kind of, you know, look, people are nice to you because you're the boss. And um, you can take that too far in your mind thinking they really like you and maybe they don't like you as much as you think they do. And then when you do a layoff, that gets tested in severe ways. So like a layoff is a breaking of trust because you literally broke the promise, you know, when you hire people. You tell them this is going to be a great company. It's going to be awesome. You're going to have fun here. Your career is going to advance. And then all of a sudden, you're firing people and sending them home. And a lot of CEOs will make the mistake while saying, well, you know, we laid off, you know, maybe we laid off people who we didn't really need or didn't really want. And that may be true, but those people um, who you laid off are closer to people in your company that are staying than they are to you um, often. And in every case, I mean, there's nowhere you're closer to every employee than, than anybody else is. And so the people who stay, you know, you're going to lose trust with them because their friends who they respected and liked and so forth get laid off. So you've got this huge kind of uh, trust crisis, so to speak. And the reason why that's so fundamentally bad is that trust is the kind of essential ingredient of any culture of any organization. And the reason is trust is so highly related to communication, right? And that if I trust you entirely, you barely have to talk to me because I know whatever you do is going to be in my best interest and I trust that it's the right thing. And if I trust you not at all, then you can talk to me all day long and I'm not going to hear a word you say because I don't trust you. And in an organization that's, detrimental to have a communication breakdown like that and a trust breakdown like that. And, and you kind of hear um, 
you know, like if you follow football, you always hear, well, you have to trust the system. Like the players will say, you have to trust the system. And the reason is, okay, if I don't trust my teammates, then if they don't do what they're supposed to do, then it doesn't matter what I do. And therefore it doesn't, you know, and as soon as it doesn't matter what I do, then you have chaos. And that's very true in a company and very true in, in a military organization and anything. And so, you know, when you have layoffs, the first thing to do is is you've got to start to, the day you do the layoff, you have to start working on rebuilding trust, on making sure that everything that you say is true at that moment, that uh, you're restoring honesty and so forth. Um, and you and you do the layoff in the right way. And I, you know, I've spoken a lot about this in, in writing and so on, but, you know, if you're in that situation where you're doing a layoff, just know that it's going to be the end of your company if you don't start rebuilding the trust and the faith in the in the organization in a real way that day um it's exacerbated in covid and this is something i've noticed uh kind of in our own firm is that kind of face to face is a natural free trust builder like mm -hmm. it's basically like if i'm with you and i can see you and i can see your intentions um, and you know, if I can, you know, shake your hand or give you a hug or touch it, like that's that 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 creates trust in a way that's almost impossible to do on video. It's it's actually the one thing that uh, and so you know, so you have that problem on top of it. So I think that you know, any leader uh, right now has to be thinking very hard about okay how can you how can you create trust how can you maintain trust um how can you rebuild trust you know coming out of this particularly if you stay remote um because that you know it's such a fundamental underpinning of everything that you're going to do mm -hmm. so well I, let me ask you two questions so first of all um you know when the dot-com crash happened you know there was the let's say widespread <laughs> view that it was the fault of the tech companies yeah. Um, right. Uh, it was like our fault um, when, um, you know, the financial crisis happened. It was, you know, the fault of the banks, um, yes. you know, when a company. <laughs> which, which was, I think, I feel like it, it wasn't more true with the banks, but what was true with the banks is they actually risk our money, meaning taxpayers, whereas we just yeah. risked our investors' money, which, you know, as a VC, like we know that we knew the job is dangerous when we took it like that yeah. seems more fair but anyway yeah we're still uh, we're still waiting for the tech bailout <laughs> yeah. from uh, from 2000 um uh and then um you know when it, when a company gets into trouble by itself you know it has a whatever bad product release or something you know it, it you know it, it blames itself or it blames its executives or its ceo but it's like it's pretty clearly somebody's fault covid is you know covid's different right because covid's like at least in theory like covid's nobody's fault um, and you know, it's like a, you know, it's like a, a quite literally act of God, you know, kind of territory. And so I guess yeah. the question is, does the fact that Twitter, that the COVID is anybody's fault, does that make any of this easier or does this just, does that really actually not matter because we're talking about people's lives and that's just actually not a factor? Well, there's a couple of things on that though. One is, um, not every company is laying off. Uh, yep. so if you're doing the layoff, you know, and particularly I see this in like software, like SaaS. So like, it's one thing if you're a travel company and that kind of thing, that's a little, maybe you get a little more of a pass, but let's say you're like a SaaS software company. Um, but you know, the way, you know, your, your stage of development, you know, your way of selling so forth, you're going to have to do a layoff. There are a lot of SaaS companies that didn't do layoffs. Uh, so 
yep. you know, at that point, you are going to take the blame. And then the other thing that happens in a layoff is you end up laying off some of the wrong people if you're big enough. <laughs> um, right. And yep. I'll just give you an example. Like I laid off uh, and, and, it, and it kills things. So Eric Vishria, who's a uh, great partner at Benchmark Capital now and used to work for me at Opsware, I laid off uh, a really good friend of his who was one of the smartest guys in our company by accident. Like I didn't lay him off directly, but he was laid off. Um, and, you know, I had known Eric since he was 19 years old and he had been working for me for years. And he was so mad at me. He was, you know, ready to quit over that. Um, and that didn't have anything to do with the fact we did the layoff. It had to do with the fact that we laid off the wrong guy. Uh, and, you know, so you, you, you do have those kinds of issues as well. And then let me outline a scenario. So I, I don't like after the last year, I don't want to predict anything anymore for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> the world is apparently getting yeah. very strange, but um, let me lay out a scenario for what follows kind of COVID. And I, I think there's actually pretty, I think pretty good odds of this scenario, which, which basically is like, okay, like we've, we've passed through this like one way door where we now realize like we, we being CEOs and investors, like we now realize that it's possible to structure and run companies differently than we all thought. Um, yeah. And we know that, you know, remote work is a lot more viable than we thought. And then that opens up, you know, all kinds of questions um, around, you know, where should our workforces be located? And some of that is employee driven because they want to move. And some of that is like, well, you know, like a lot of my friends who are like CEOs in New York, they're like, oh, like, I don't need all these back office people in New York anymore. Like I can move them to like Minnesota or something. And it's, and it's, it's going to be actually just fine. I didn't know I could do that. And now I can like, you know, save our shareholders a lot of money by doing that. By the way, I can create a lot of jobs in, you know, places that maybe don't have them. Um, yep. And so, so there's all that. And then there's just like, basically this sense, I think among CEOs, or there, there will be that basically is like COVID is to some extent a get out of jail free card for doing anything you want to do to restructure your company in a way yep. that maybe you were always thinking about, but, you know, maybe you would have thought would be too, you know, too traumatic or, 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 or dramatic. Um, yes. and, and so there's a real scenario coming out of this that a lot of companies are going to go through a, you know, really like dramatic level of restructuring and change that will yeah. result in, you know, potentially a lot of, you know, well, you say geographic movement of jobs, but the thing with, with, with when jobs move geographically is the people, you know, people don't usually move in mass, right? And so you end, you end up cutting jobs in one place and adding jobs somewhere else. And then there will be companies that simply like don't hire back, right? They'll just be like, okay, yeah. now's a chance to like replace, you know, 5,000 people, you know, customer service people with software, right? And we can just basically say like, this is all part of the restructuring we're doing after COVID. And so, so it feels like we're going to go into a period where there's going to be a lot of change in the economy yeah. and, and, and in jobs. And then the, the, the good side of that is like <laughs> academically, like basically that should, that should, that should lead to like really rapid productivity growth in the economy. And that's good because that should lead to economic growth and wage growth and so forth. Like in general, that this is like an economically healthy thing in terms of the, the growth rate of the economy. But in the process, like a lot of people's lives will get disrupted. And so yes. I, I guess I'd be curious, like what, you know, it, we've you been know, going through that a yeah. lot, you know, with, with, um, you know, kind of technological change, I would say over the last 25 years. Um, so then this is an accelerant even on that. Yeah. So, you know, as a, you know, sort of as a CEO yourself, and then as somebody who talks to and advises a lot of CEOs, mm -hmm. like how, how do you, you know, how do you think, you know, given the opportunity that they will use in front of them, like how should they think this through? Yeah. So Look, I think you have to embrace the future. Um, and, and like a really simple analogy that, that as you know, I, I use around the firm is, look, when, when Google introduced free lunch, <laughs> like right. I don't care if you think free lunch is good or bad, at some point you had to offer free lunch because you couldn't hire anybody because everybody expects free lunch, right? Like, and so you can't 
you know, hide from the future if you're a CEO. And if people are offering work from home and, and kind of changing their business and making it more efficient, like you can't stick your head in the sand on that. You have to really understand it and look at it and see if uh, it's going to give you competitive advantage or disadvantage. And one of the things that really, you know, kind of knocked me on the ground when I heard it, because it, it it convinced me so much that you have to, you know, that, that work from home is a real, real thing that we're never going to get away from because it's very important is uh, a lot of the young women who work for us said, look, this is the first time in my life that I've been able, that I felt like I could have a career and be a mother and be good at both. And so like, that's, that's a much bigger thing than, you know, a commute or anything else. And so now, you know, you, you are in a new world. And so I think the first thing is you've got to embrace the new world and you have to understand it and you have to, you know, as, as uh, our friend Cheryl Sandberg would said, you have to lean into it and not run away from it. Um, having said that, you know, as a leader, I think that things that are kind of, there's categories of things that are kind of unknown, unsolved um, in this kind of new environment, you know, trust and loyalty, particularly if you hit a crisis, like if everything is going well in the company, you can get away with bad culture, bad management, a lot of bad things. But when you hit a situation where like a competitor gets the better of you or, um, you know, you're in a tough position, then all these things matter tremendously. So kind of getting out and, and really understanding, okay, how is career development different? How is, how are people's feelings about our organization different? Um, and what can we do to make those optimal in the new work environment, I think are critically important questions. And if you ignore them, you'll, you'll, it'll run through your fingers as soon as you hit a crisis. A good, so it, it's funny, George Tennant, our friend George Tennant, every time I saw him at Allen Company would say to me about Trump, because at, at the time was, when we were still going to Allen Company because there was no COVID, um, like things were going like reasonably okay in the country. There were a lot of, like he'd say a lot of crazy stuff, but it, it wasn't really like a, it, it didn't kind of melt down the whole country. But what George used to always say is like, just wait till there's a crisis, then we're, we're going to be totally screwed because this guy just says crazy shit all the time. And, you know, like in a crisis, it's going to be problematic. And I think that um, <laughs> that's kind of like what this is. Like, I, I don't think it matters in, unless there is a real crisis, but in a crisis, it's going to be the only thing that matters. Yeah, a friend of mine observed, he's like, you know, it, like up until now to like, you know, either fire somebody or to quit, um, you know, it was always like a thing, right? Because you're like in the office, it's like, you know, the secret meetings in the conference rooms, it's like, you know, somebody's actually going to leave, they have to pack up their desk, it's like, you yeah. know, you have to say goodbye to everybody, right? It's like, there's all this shame, right? It's like this yeah. whole thing. Oh, yeah. Right? And so my friend observed, he's like, okay, if all the meetings are going to be on Zoom, <laughs> on Zoom then you just log off Zoom one day, right? And you log into a different Zoom the next day. And, you know, it's a different set it's of faces. On the yeah. Yeah, you know, that's and, a really good point. Also in terms of kind of what I spoke about earlier, right? So then maybe your peers don't care about you as much either. Right. Right. They're fine. You got fired. Yeah. You're not a, really my friend. I only knew you on video. Right. <laughs> it's not like we had a beer or something. Right. So that, that, that's a, that's an interesting point. I, I think that's I think there's a lot of truth to that. 
Um, there's this and, concept and yeah. there's this concept in psychology of the it's called the, the parasocial relationship. Um, yeah. And so it's it's the it's sort of the friendship actually it's actually the more feeling people like feel for celebrities they don't know, but it's basically this idea of like it feels like it's a relationship but it's not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 No. That. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it. Uh, it definitely cuts both ways. I mean, it's an interesting. It's it's a very interesting observation. And then, you know, and maybe you just have to get like a thousand times better at training and onboarding because, you know, the workforce is going to be even more fluid than it is now. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, okay, good. Uh, well, we can come back if people have you know feedback on that. This is obviously a critically important topic, so feel free to um, ask more follow-up questions on Twitter, um, and we'll continue to uh, to talk about it in the weeks ahead. Um, so, uh, second question: um, Zeng Tan asks, "What is something first-time founders, especially ones who haven't had prior startup experience, miss and wish they could course correct earlier?" Mm -hmm. And I have a I have a big uh, nominated nomination on this one, but uh, Ben, I'll, I'll let you go first, and then I'll follow. You know, I can tell you the one that every single one of them misses. Um, is and it's a psychological trick. So basically your first time founder, you become CEO. Um, you don't know how to do the job because it's not a job that you know how to do intuitively. Nobody does. Um, but yet you're CEO <laughs> and you're recruiting everybody in. So you're supposed to know how to do the job. And so that kind of psychological paradox stops you from really doing the real work to learn how to do the job, <laughs> meaning ask uh, the right people the right questions at the right time so that you can come up the learning curve faster. And where, I'll tell you where this manifests itself always is in executive hiring. Um, we don't, I don't think we have a single founder that like went out and aced executive hiring like their first time through it. You know, everybody makes tons of mistakes and has to fire all their execs and rehire them. And the reason is, hey, you've not been CFO. You've not been head of HR, but here you are hiring it. You don't even know what the job is. <laughs> you know, you're out there like hiring a Japanese interpreter. You don't speak Japanese and you're not getting any help. And you're acting like you know how to do it because you think you're CEO, which you are, but you're not really. <laughs> and so the right kind of the right answer to that is, you know, really get some help, get trained up on like, what is that job? You know, what do good, you know, what's the difference between a good CFO and a great CFO through the mouth of an actual CFO? Um, like, how do you go about learning all those things? And almost every first-time founder, there's a whole class of things around that that they screw up, but but it's all comes from that same point of, I'm really supposed to know how to do this, but I don't. So rather than ask somebody and reveal myself, I'm going to just go ahead and screw it up. And then of course, in Silicon Valley, there are many, many advisors who give advice uh, despite the fact that they have no idea what they're talking about. So that, that exacerbates it as well. But, but they always sound confident. Always confident. <laughs> They've heard it from somebody who knew, right? Like it's like a third hand weird type of thing. Yes. So the thing I would nominate, and I've been, I'll be curious what you think of this. The thing I would nominate is it goes to the nature of the relationship with the co-founders. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> so this this is a separate thing than, than what Ben was talking about, but although they... they <laughs> I made that mistake myself, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. No, thank um, you so much. Yes, well, <laughs> there's still time. Um, so, um, so, and basically there's two scenarios here. So scenario number one is you're a, sol you're a solo founder. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think there are certain people who can do that. Um, I don't think I could do it. 
And I, and I, in fact, I never have, and I would not want to, um, just because like doing it by yourself, like I, I you know, kind of, it goes actually to some stuff Ben you were talking about, which was like to not have anybody to talk to who's like in the same, you know, in the same, in the same boat with you, um, you know, with all the same knowledge, like to have to like have all that pressure just be on you. Um, seems intense. Yeah, you, so anyway, I, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, and you can wind off track very fast. Um, right. Because you don't have somebody to calibrate. Yep. Yeah. So you're, you're like living in your head, right? Yeah, exactly. You're like having all these debates with yourself and you're under incredible pressure. Um, and so that's, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's really tough. And of course, this is one of the reasons why people then have multiple founders. So then the multiple founder thing, basically, um, the way I think about, uh, I guess, give a, the conclusion first and then explain why. So the, the conclusion is as follows, which is like, I've had many, many conversations with like founding teams where they're very, very worried about, you know, who's going to be on their board. And they're very, very worried that the VCs are going to like judge them and fire them. And like, you know, and every, and every once in a while that happens. And there are, you know, some, some, some famous stories of that happening in the history of the Valley. Yeah. Uh, but they're very worried about that. What they're Never worried about is them turning on each other, um, <laughs> which happens quite a bit. <laughs> which happens quite a bit, and and you know if you're if you're in our job, basically what you see is the ratio of this is like a hundred to one or something, right? Yeah. Or maybe it's more. Maybe it's like five hundred to one or a thousand to one, which is like when 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 there's a when there's a traumatic event at the top of the company that affects the founders, it's virtually always the founders turning on each other, um, yeah. and it is it is almost never the investors or the or the board members. Um, and so it's like, okay, like, you know, why can that be? And, and, and then, of course, the thing that you do is you basically like you, you have this conversation with the founders and, and they and ev in every single case, they assure you that won't happen to them. Right. Because like, you know, they're, you know, they've, they've been, you know, they've, they've known each other since age six, you know, they've, they've like, you know, been best friends forever. Although th th those ones do better than the ones that, uh, you know, met at Y Combinator or that kind of thing, I have to say. Right. Yeah, the more yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. The, the more recent ones are the, the shotgun weddings, where somebody said, "Oh, you two, you two yeah. should team up," or somebody said, "You know, or even worse, to get funding, you have to go find a co-founder and then you <laughs> right and do it on the fly." <laughs> yep. yep and, so. and so then it's like, and, and and basically it's like, okay, well, why does this happen, right? And I would say, like, I don't know, Ben, what you would say, but it maybe is like, I don't know, half of successful companies or something. There's like a founder schism, or maybe more. Hey, yeah, I mean, well, if you look at kind of just Silicon Valley, well, I mean, you know. <laughs> the, just pick any big company and go well where is the other founder like wh where yeah. is larry ellison's co-founder what happened to all the co-founders at facebook you know like yep. all of yeah guys. why didn't yeah why didn't paul it's actually funny you know, yeah, paul paul Allen? Allen go, right why didn't he ever go back to microsoft after he you know he actually got better and like went on to have like quite a life and like why didn't you go you know he's all there before but didn't go back and he, he explained that in a book you know like he heard him talk about it <laughs> Exactly. So Paul, Paul was so mad at Bill. Paul was so mad at Bill um, for a story that he tells in the book, which is an amazing story that yeah. he literally held the story for 30 years before he wrote it in a book. And then he published it in the book without giving um, the Microsoft people any, any advance warning. Um, yeah. he, was so, he was so excited to have his revenge. Um, so, so that's like a great example. So it's just like, okay, like there's these founder splits all over the place. And then it's like, okay, well, why is that? And my view on that is the reason it's just because like, it's just, it's just flat out the pressure, right? It's just like, okay, you, you might've known somebody, you know, hopefully for longer than a month or a year, but like, you know, you've been in various circumstances together, but you haven't started a company before. Um, and then you're in this like incredibly high pressure, you know, hothouse, you know, kind of situation in yeah. which like things really start bearing down. And then that's when you start to discover things about each other. Right. And so you start to discover things <laughs> about level of commitment. You start to discover things about work ethic. You start to just, you know, discover things about responsibility, conscientiousness. You start to discover things about like emotional control. 
Um, you start to discover, you know, loyalty issues. Um, and all of a sudden, oh, and then the other thing that happens, right, is like there's like, there's there's often like a big competence difference, right? And so like one yeah. founder will turn yeah, out yeah. to just be like a lot more competent, or or, yeah. or even let's 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 even use a different word, scalable. Yep. Um, where, you know, one founder is the CEO, they're scaling with the company, you know, the investors are just putting huge amounts of effort and trying to make sure the CEO scales, you're building the team around the CEO and the other founders are like, you know, wait a minute, like what's happening here? You know, what about me? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they're often getting side, you know, kind of sidelined in the process. And so, so it's just, it's basically just like, okay, like th this is something that is really worth thinking through. And I guess what I would say is like, I, I don't know if I've ever actually met a founding team that has really thought this through. Um, and then I have, I so far have an exact, I would say hundred percent failure rate at convincing people how important this is. Um, yep. and, and by the way, the, the tip off on how, and how the tip off on my failure rate actually is that, um, <laughs> it's, it goes to founder vesting, um, yeah. which is founders really ought to like revest their stock, like frankly, as often as they can. Um, and in my, in my view, or at least like at the time of like raising venture capital, yeah, they always feel burned when one of them walks away and the other one's building the company. Oh, people get <laughs> yeah. so mad. Yeah. I mean, it is, yeah. it is, you'll, you'll have one founder who literally walks away with just a giant amount of money for, you know, in retrospect, doing yeah. very little work. And that person is just absolutely furious because they feel like, you know, they got iced out of the company and, and they're, they're missing out of the glory. And then you've got this, the founder CEO who's still running the company, who's just furious that there's this person out there who's made all this money and continues to, continues to make money every day, right? Based yep. on based on work that he's not doing. And yeah, well, so, we've had so many yeah. of those conversations because it's usually the CEO that remains and the CEO usually goes, why am I getting more stock? My co-founder left not doing anything and has the same stock as me. <laughs> like I've heard that, I've heard that at least a dozen times. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the and, and you, you, you would think it's like the emotion of this, it's like, don't these people have like enough going on? And isn't there like enough real work to do? And like, isn't it shouldn't people be happy that they're successful? And this is the kind of thing where it just like, it gnaws at you like so deeply. And, and, and especially like yeah. under pressure, like this is the kind of thing, it's like the burr in the saddle, where it's just like, Argh. yeah, so no, it, it's a big one. <laughs> For sure. Well, you know, it reminds me of the, what you talked about is kind of there, there's a great line, um, I forgot which samurai book, but basically what the samurai kind of in the code was in ordinary times, matters of character cannot be determined. But when something happens, all is revealed. And that kind of gets at the thing. It's like they, they join each other in ordinary times. They don't know, you know, you, you don't know the integrity, the honesty, the courage of your co-founder at that point. Yep. Then you get married then you divide up the company, then something happens, and then you find out who the real person that you found in the company was is, and it, it's it's difficult. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And so <laughs> I, I would say for first-time founders, uh, tread very carefully if you're going to do it yourself, and tread very carefully if you're going to do it with somebody else. Um, yeah. And and this stuff like matter. This stuff matters. Like this stuff matters so much during the process of then all the work that follows. So. This stuff uh, will definitely have a big Actually, impact. you know, one of the best things that ever happened to us is like we had like a pressure incident when we were yep. raising the A round. And I think that 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 helped the company get through like some of the horrible shit, um, hmm. you know, that just because, just right. <laughs> you know, we had something happen. So that kind of revealed a little bit about who each other were. If, if that hadn't happened, like we wouldn't have been tested so early.
yeah, it might have been so, a lot different, right? So we have something to thank that guy for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we won't name names today. No, no, that's <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, all right, next question. Uh, and actually it's uh, somewhat related. So uh, uh, Vinayak Ranaday asks, is there any observable difference between founders of 1 billion versus 10 billion versus $100 billion uh, market cap companies? You know, sort of, let's say, you know, kind of by, by venture standards, small, medium, and large outcomes. Um, independent and externalities like market slash speed of adoption slash killer talent and exec team. So, so specifically differences in the founders. You know, the, the CEOs that, that we've worked with who have had the really big outcomes, um, you know, be it, uh, Todd McKinnon or Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, kind of across different kinds of things. So the, there are like the common things are just unlimited determination and um, extreme courage. I, I, I would say like those are the two like character traits that they both have. There are other things like founder velocity and this and that and the other, but to kind of get to really big, you have to, one, you have to walk away from a lot of money many times. So, you know, that takes a, like a tremendous amount of determination to do that. And then um, you have to, yeah, you, you just have to like be willing to walk through an unbelievable amount of pain along the way. So th th those are kind of the character things, at least mm -hmm. that I noticed. Um, you know, there's other like talent wise and, you know, how brilliant they are and how great the ideas are, are of course, huge factors in how what the outcome is. So I agree with that. And then the thing I would nominate um, that's in addition to that, the thing I would nominate is I think it's it's the ability of the, C, the, the CEO, the founder CEO to calibrate the importance of direct control um, versus building an organization that can scale. Um, and I, I guess what I would say is like the, the, the most advanced founders, my, mm. my view anyway, is that basically uh, yeah. what they... You know, the most advanced, the most advanced founders of CEOs, like their their attitude basically, but well, it actually goes to it actually goes to something Andy Grove said in his book, which is the, the output of a manager is the output of his organization. Um, and so the 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 sort of company version of this is, you know, the the, the company is it, the company is the extension of the CEO. Like it, it just focusing for a moment on the CEO, like the, yeah. the company is like an extension of the CEO's ability to like get things done um, yep. and have things and have things happen. Um, and so the CEOs who think, I would say, very kind of broadly and expansively about what it means to build an organization that can scale in order to get more and more done where the CEO doesn't have to be in the room, um, you know, yeah. is, 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 is definitely a requirement for the, for the large outcomes. Like you have to do that at some point. Um, yeah. And then I guess yeah. I'd say, you know, founders, there are founders who, where the companies clearly have that potential where they just, they, for whatever reason, they feel like that's just too much. I don't know if it's too much of a threat or a challenge or what it is, but like they kind of feel like they need to have too much control in the moment and they can't quite ever let that happen. Yeah, that characteristic is is a tricky one to develop because um, you have to be, in order to do what you're saying, you both have to be okay with like things being broken in the organization because you're letting them out of your control. So you're going right. to have things that are embarrassing to you that are kind of bad. But then at the same time, you have to be extremely urgent about getting all those fixed. Um, so it's that balance of not uh, basically stretching yourself out so thin because you have to review every stupid word and everything and you have to, <laughs> you know, like uh, 
rewrite people's code and do all these kinds of things that that, that people feel the need to do um, at, at the extreme micro level. Um, but at the same time, you have to really care about kind of pushing things forward and getting them better. And that's difficult psychologically, because mm -hmm. if you can't take the fact that things aren't good, um, like most people are either happy-go-lucky, like, okay, it's fine, everything's broken and I don't care, and that's terrible, or right. they're like so incensed about it that they're too controlling and they don't, uh, they, they're not able to grow the organization effectively. Yep, right. And then you get this thing where it's like, there's, there's just clearly more potential, but it's like the company just simply can't get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. look, there's, there's a lot of things that are really important and amazing to do, and you're just not gonna do them. <laughs> right, and right. that like it's and that's usually the best choice you make is to walk away from a real opportunity because there's a bigger one that you're working on yeah um yep okay um all right next question um uh so our friend lewis anslow asks um how do you think about neuroatypical founders um is adhd which is i think it's uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder considered a net positive or a liability uh, something to be managed and worked around, um, or something to be balanced out with a more neurotypical co-founder. And I would I would extend the question from ADHD also, of course, to uh, uh, you know sort of uh, Asperger's uh, or the autistic spectrum. Yeah, yeah. which is yeah, yeah. So this is um, you know I it is a kind of topic I've spent a lot of time on because you know I've got an autistic daughter. So um, the the whole kind of the, the way like I think one model to or way to look at this is, you know, there's a kind of a distribution of nervous systems. Um, and then you do have, you know, in that distribution, there are ones that are very deviant, that are a few standard deviations off the norm or, and so forth in various ways. And, um, you know, certainly autism is, is, a, is, <laughs> is pretty, uh, you know, kind of off the mean. Um, but interestingly, genius is also way off the mean. And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's been much written about kind of overlapping characteristics. So, you know, they, they, they're, you know, for years, everybody talked about Bill Gates as kind of Asperger's autistic kind of tendencies from rocking to, you know, his messy hair and all those kinds of things. And, um, you know, Einstein was known for continuing to put the spoon in his mouth long after the cereal was gone and that kind of thing. And Van Gogh cut off his ear and gave it to his girlfriend, which if you work with, you know, uh, special needs kids, you know, that's very inappropriate social behavior. Uh, so, you know, all these kinds of things um, that, you know, we would consider to be maybe a mental health issue or, or something atypical are also kind of present in people's nervous systems who see the world differently, who have some special kind of genius. And so for us as investors, um, you know, that kind of thing, we'd never rule somebody out on that, uh, in that, like, if they are a genius, they may very well be manic, they may have ADHD, they may have all these things, but then the, there is a follow-on question, which is, can they function? Are they functional? Um, you know, can they, and particularly, can they function in the context of an organization? And uh, look, that's a high bar. And, you know, many people who have those conditions, you know, can't, and it's not for them. Um, so it's not an automatic that, you know, we see somebody who's, uh, you know, bipolar and we go, okay, we're definitely giving 
you know, her all our money because she's going to be amazing. She may be Elon Musk. She may be amazing, but she she may also like be impossible to work for. And so it, it's, uh, you, you know, there's not an easy answer, but I would just say that, you know, like people with deviant nervous systems are are special in our society. And, you know, like some of them can make great contributions and some of them, you know, we need to take care of. But uh, the one thing we definitely don't want to do is, you know, use CRISPR to eliminate some of these conditions because they uh, right. contribute amazingly to moving us forward. Right. Yeah, you know the other thing that maybe is happening, you know, cult culturally, you know, there, historically there was a lot of shame and still is associated with, you know, a lot of mental mental conditions, including including these. Um, uh, mm -hmm. You know, they were sort of you know considered to be things not to talk not to be talked about or to be hidden away. Um, you know, this the stigma. It feels like the stigma is coming off over time. Um, yeah. And in fact, you, you do run into more people who basically are, you know, you, you run into people all the way all the way on the other side where like they they you know sort of are very happy to announce it. Um, mm -hmm. and then just a lot of people who are just more open about it. Um, and so, you know, it may be the kind of, it may be the kind of thing that is going to get easier to discuss. Um, and then also as a consequence, like easier to deal with and, and easier to help people with. Yeah. You know, our, our friend, the late Bernard Tyson was really good on this topic where he said like the name mental health is a dumb idea. Like it should right. just be health. Um, because how is mental health? different than and it affects physical health and by calling it mental health we stigmatized it and uh and that's that's really been kind of the dumbest thing that we did is stigmatize mental health because not not only um you know is it it's treatable in many ways but also sometimes it's a huge advantage so uh it's great we're making progress there yeah. And then a book, I actually have, I haven't read the book, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, there's a, there's a researcher that probably the world's leading autism researcher, his name is Simon Baron Cohen. So B-A-R-O-N-C-O-H-E-N. Um, and uh, his, his son, by the way, is Ali G um, or Borat, <laughs> although uh, fortunately Simon is a lot more serious, Simon is a lot more serious <laughs> than his son. Um, uh, and uh, he, he just, he's written a number of books on, on, on autism and the autistic spectrum. And he just wrote a book called The Pattern Seekers. Um, and he, he actually tells sort of the historical story that Ben was referencing. And he sort of, he goes, it, it, apparently the thesis of the book, he's kind of goes through history showing how, you know, a large number of the people who like really move civilization forward over the last few thousand years are people who were, you know, somewhere on the autistic spectrum or had these, these, these various issues. Um, so anyway, I, I haven't read it. I've heard it's great. Um, so for people who are interested, I would, I would recommend that. Um, okay. Let's see. All right. Okay, good. Uh, okay. Change the topic, different, uh, different topic. Um, uh, different domains. So, uh, Palak uh, Zatakia asks views on text versus audio versus video content consumption and creation patterns, and how the world read internet will change in each of these three uh, three directions. And of course, this is like a very relevant question. You know, this is a very relevant question just because you know we live in a world saturated, obviously, with media, and there's all these controversies around you know social media and you know streaming and you know video and all these things over the last decade. Um, and then, of course, here we are in Clubhouse, right, which is like, a, you know, essentially a brand new medium, you know, that kind of, you know, borrows from, you know, everything from, you know, conference calls to, to talk shows, but like is, is, is fundamentally a new dynamic. Um, and so, like, where, where is this all headed? And so let me advance a thesis. And I, I will say I, I'm, I'm shamelessly ripping this thesis off from somebody who's in the room and, in fact, is actually in the top row of the room, um, Antonio, our friend Antonio. Um, uh, that basically uh, borrows on work done by media researchers like 60, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, including Marshall McLuhan and this guy named uh, Walter Ong, who did this, did this sort of very interesting work on this topic where he basically, the thesis basically is that there's, 
there's sort of two kinds of cultures um, in terms of how media intersects culture and sort of you know potentially determines culture or determines the shape of culture. He said there's sort of two kinds of cultures. There's oral culture uh, or what he calls orality, um, and then there's a literary culture or literate culture. Um, and so, and, and think of, and think of this historically. Think of this historically as you know there were people way before there was writing, right? Um, and there were people way before there was math. Right. You know, so ideograms and like all the numbers and all these other things. And so how did those people communicate um, and how did they, um, you know, sort of shape their ideas, transmit their ideas? How did they develop culture? Like, how did they develop ideas that actually passed on from generation to generation? Um, and, and they were and they were by definition oral, oral cultures. Right. The, the 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 one thing that they could do was 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 speak. And so the, the entire culture was built around this this kind of uh, this kind of uh, oral foundation. Um, and then, you know, later on, the, it's interesting, like the Greeks, I think, uh, sort of uh, were one of the inventors of, of, of writing, but then they actually continued a largely oral culture for the next few hundred years. Um, and then, you know, kind of literary culture developed, you know, the, the actually Christianity, the Bible, you know, was a big mm-hmm. part of it. And then, right, the you know, printing starting, press, yeah, sure. Right. Right, exactly. And then the printing, the printing press kind of kicked it into gear, like for real, right? Because the printing, the printing press lets you move from a very small number of people who could literally hand copy out books. Who were called scribes to a world where you could have mass production and, and right the thing that was <laughs> the very first thing that was mass produced was the bible the very second thing was uh, uh scandal sheet newspapers yeah. um <laughs> fake, fake, fake news media um li- literally scandal sheets in and around the vatican um spreading all kinds of scurrilous rumors um and then you know the enlightenment basically right like in the 1700s you know around there the enlightenment basically was like okay now we have this basically technology for literary idea transmission um, and so now we're going to write everything down. We're going to like also do the same thing with numbers. We're going to like have mathematics. We're going to all of a sudden have like, and all of a sudden, like all of the like big debates are going to happen, like through the written word, right. We're going to have all these like, you know, manifestos and we're going to have like, you know, the American constitution and like, it's, you know, these things are all, we're going to have, you know, philo- philosophy as we, we understand it now, right. It's distinct right. from religion, which is, you know, basically through, through a process of writing. Um, and so then we moved into this world where we have a literate culture and, the thing about this change, at least the way the theory goes, is the thing around this change is that if you think about it, like an oral culture, like pre-rational is not quite the right term, but it's like the focus is not rationality or logic. The focus is on uh, interpersonal interactions. Right, relationships. Um, yeah. Relationships, right. So oral cultures, in, in the theory, oral cultures are social in nature. Uh, they're emotional in nature. Um, they have to do with, right, around uh, human relationships. Um, they have to do, they're, they're very family centric, tribal centric. Um, you know, they're very focused on establishing, you know, very strong bonds, you know, between family members or tribe members. They're very focused, you know, for, for a very long time, by the way, they were all inherently, inherently religious, like for a very long time, basically mm-hmm. families and, and tribes both essentially were, were religious cults, um, to be, and the, and the religious cult was, was basically the, 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 the sort of the idea of the community as encoded into its traditions transmitted orally. Um, basically ended up, ended up, ended up in the form of a cult, you know, it passed, passed through generational lines. Um, and so, and, and of course, what did, what, what didn't they have, right? They didn't, you know, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have like almost everything today that we would, we would think of as like science, uh, or mm-hmm. rationality or, you know, basically like, or like, let's say abstraction, right? They, they didn't really, yeah. they, they really had abstract concepts. Cause like, how would you, like, even if you thought of an abstract concept, how would you ever possibly communicate it? Um, and so basically it's like, okay, human civilization then is like an oral culture up until I call it the Gutenberg and the Enlightenment. Uh, then, you know, in the West, it, you know, in, 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 you know, in various places, various times, we become, you know, in theory, literate cultures, you know, but of course the oral culture doesn't die, right? And the oral culture kind Even of- Even in the West, it continues, right, exactly. 
Exactly, right, exactly. And by the way, right, what is sort of a classic expression of oral culture is music, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, so it's like, why is there music and why is there music with lyrics, right? And mm -hmm. if you think about it, like if you go back like over the last few thousand years, it's basically because what they could do was they could, the only way to get information reliably from generation to generation was to encode it in the form of a poem. Uh, right. Or in the right, form yeah. of a story, right? Or in form right. of musical lyrics, right? Like in a Homer or proverbs or all those things, right? Were, yeah, were memorizable, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. And there's there's actually all this research about how basically like they they use like the structure of like poems kind of through the like the you know around the Greek time or even like uh, uh you know sort of uh, later on it's like you know there's is uses like very dense information packing it's like they're optimally mm -hmm. structured for like right. maximum <laughs> maximum information <laughs> per line. Because like yeah. you, you just like the, the odds of it getting through, right? We're just not that high, and so you you, you had to really focus on distilling it down. There's such an awesome amount of wisdom in, in some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing is it's all yeah. you know this this idea of the Lind the Lindy thing is like the things that last, yeah. and it's like what whatever whatever songs or poems or you know um, you know sort of epic poetry like whatever survived was kind of by definition the best of what those people had to offer. Because right. it was the stuff <laughs> that they remembered. <laughs> yeah, and it was important enough Amazing. to pass down to their kids, right across yeah. you know dozens or even hundreds of generations. Um, so anyway, but but like oral culture continues, and of course, oral culture is like you know conspiracy culture, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like okay, like how do we explain what's happened in the world? We can't deal with the abstractions, and so we need to come up with you know basically you know these social kind of theories, which which are sort of the form of conspiracies. So anyway, it's like okay, <laughs> we had oral culture, then we had literate culture, and then it's like okay. Does the internet and social media, right? And, you know, for that matter, things like Clubhouse, like, are they a continuation of like literary culture or are they a return to oral culture? Right. And by the way, here we are talking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, and so what we're doing here is, you know, very similar to although, what our... Although in this case, we're talking about books, so... <laughs> we, we, we are. Well, so it's actually funny. So I'll, I'll just tell one more little story on this and then get your reaction. So uh, Socrates, right, who's like, you know, one of the smartest people who ever lived, uh, Socrates actually hated writing. Uh, there's a famous thing that he did in one of his things. So so Socrates actually never wrote anything down. He only ever spoke. And, and that's why it's all uh, what we know about Plato, him. yeah. Plato, right? Plato yeah. wrote everything else down. Um, and so literally it's like Socrates refused to write anything down on principle. And then there was this like Plato kid following him around, right. In Athens, like scribbling all this shit yeah. down. And Socrates is like, okay. Yeah. But he like, was anti-writing, right. Socrates was anti-writing because he thought it messed up your memory. He thought that's right. Terrible. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said, look, he said, look, everything that's important, <laughs> right. Is something that yeah. you should be like, well, so one of the famous things he said, one of the famous things he said, was he said, look, the problem with writing is it doesn't talk back. Yeah. Right. Like, and so it doesn't matter how often you read something, you're never going to get anything different. Right. Whereas when you like yeah. talk to somebody, you have a chance, you know, you have the, 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 the dialectic. When you talk to somebody, yeah. you have the opportunity to actually gain new knowledge. Right. right. Because you, you, you can actually stress test each other. And so he, he was actually, he, he shit all over, he shit all over writing. Um, <laughs> he was like the original Luddite. He's like, that new writing yeah. technology sucks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so anyway, like the theory, and this is from Antonio, but the theory basically, the theory would be basically the internet is sort of paradoxically essentially shoving us back or forward into a new oral culture, um, which is why it's so rife with all of this, you know, crazy, you know, whatever you want to call it, conspiracies, misinformation, you know, sort right. of, um, and I would say, right, for good and for bad, maybe, right, which is just like all, let's just say all kinds of wildly creative thinking and expression that would never make its way into a book. Right. Yeah. Or into a, you know, whatever, a, you know, at least a classic version of a magazine or a newspaper. Yeah. Um, but all of a sudden, just like people are able to talk and, and literally what's happening is people are people are talking about it. 
And so the theory basically would be like we're, we're headed actually back into what is actually a much more oral culture um, and, and, and for better or for worse. Yeah, that, that, that's an amazingly interesting take on that question. <laughs> and I think, I think it's right. It's interesting though, you know, the, the other thing I was going to bring up is, um, and you uh, mentioned Marshall McLuhan, but um, the medium is the message. Right. And it is, you know, one of the things about the different formats, you know, be it kind of the very short form text on Twitter versus the longer text on uh, Facebook versus the, you know, longer text on Medium or Substack um, versus Clubhouse versus Zoom. It It is the ideas uh, that you can get across are all very, very different. And like one of the things that's been amazing on Clubhouse is listen. <laughs> it's absent right. on Twitter and it's mostly absent on other things. You know, there's kind of our conversation, I would say listening and adding to the knowledge is, um, you know, the kind of additive knowledge through conversation is not something that happens on the other uh, social networks, or at least not for me. Um, yeah. And so this, th this has been a real breakthrough on clubhouse, I think, uh, and so it's exciting to see where it goes, but um, it's certainly oral. <laughs> so but ben, maybe more like Socrates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we, we we definitely need the Socrates at Clubhouse. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, unless like Wingnut, you know. Maybe 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 that's Elon. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, the, I guess the question the question I'd ask you, Ben, is like, how do you? Because I know you, you you know you think a lot about music, um, like. How, and, and sort of music, not just as like a form of entertainment, but like as a mechanism of, I think you'd, you'd say like cultural transmission. Um, yeah, no, and, for sure. And, and, yeah. And so like, how, how would you think about like the role of music, like, you know, in this framework? Well, it's interesting because, you know, music is, um, uh, and when you kind of spend time with musicians, like the thing that they're always after is the feeling. Like, how mm -hmm. do they translate the feeling um, and the meaning of the feeling uh, into kind of a, a work of art. And, and, you know, often like the huge challenge is how do you like create a new feeling or like, um, or correspond, you know, kind of anchor in a feeling that you have. And uh, which goes very much, you know, like it, it's not surprising that it's, it's, it's part of oral culture in that sense. And so I think that, and then, then in that way, it kind of always um, tries to both drive as well as represent the culture that it comes from and that it, um, you know, either of the time period or the locale or, or what have you. Um, but it is also like dramatically affected by social media because people are going for shorter and shorter feelings in music, I would say, uh, you know, is one of the kind of weird kind of challenges that goes on because people want, okay, I want that feeling for this five minutes. Um, but it's not like, you know, when we were kids, we'd listen to albums over and over and over and over again, um, you know, and, and get very attached to them because they would kind of bring us to a, a, literally a place of time and a set of friends that, uh, that we couldn't otherwise get to. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, for people who are into this topic, um, two books I'd recommend. So one, as I mentioned, Walter Ong, uh, his book was called Orality and Literacy. 
um, and it is available on Amazon. And then there's another book that came out. It's an extraordinary book, by the way, um, by an anthropologist named Joseph Henrich, spelled H-E-N-R-I-C-H. And he just wrote this book called uh, Weird, W-E-I-R-D, W-E-I-R-D, and which is- That's a great name. It's a, it's a great name. It's a, and weird is an acronym. Uh, weird is an acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Um, <laughs> and it's this. It's a great book. It's this. It's sort of this takedown of basically the entire field of psychology uh, on the basis of like the Western psychology basically has only been studying basically undergrads at Western colleges as their test subjects for like the last hundred years, um, and that those are like the most uncharacteristic people in the world um, as compared to like everybody else. Yeah. Um, and actually, huh. it's, which is a whole topic. But anyway, the, the, the point, the point, the point of bringing it up is the first chap- chapter actually opens on this topic of oral versus literate. And he actually goes into the science. And I, I was not aware of this. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible, uh, uh, he gives an incredible explanation. Um, when people in a society um, become literate, um, their brains physically change. Um, and what happens, he says, is that you need basically more, you know, neurological processing to deal with written language. Um, mm-hmm. and so what happens is your brain expands its ability to interpret basically, uh, symbols. Um, and in the process, it steps on the part of the brain that interprets faces. <laughs> well, and that goes together, right? Like, you know, the, uh, it screws up the whole relationship culture if you don't remember anybody's name because you don't recognize their face it screws it all up that yeah. makes a lot of sense yeah exactly and of course you know there are people by the way i, I yeah. have been there are people who literally yeah. have this you know thing called you know face blindness ah um, uh, yeah you know where they, they literally literally can't tell the difference they literally can't you know i've actually had this happen where like i literally don't recognize somebody i met two minutes ago right and it's just <laughs> like yeah. and it's just like you know for a long time i was just like okay i'm just like something's like i'm just confused or something and it's like oh this is actually a thing um but anyway um uh you know th- this is actually like a real there's actually a real thing in the brain like there's a section of the brain that is devoted to basically interpreting faces and that is the section of the brain that like deals with you know basically how to but it's not it's not just recognition it's also like how do you interpret emotion right yeah um right how do you do bonding and have relationships and know when somebody's upset um and so anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting because like it's an actual physical change in the brain and it's a non, uh, it's not a change in the DNA. Um, it's a change in the, uh, in the actual physical structure. Uh, so it's a, it's a neuroplasticity, but it's probably, yeah. but it's heritable. Yes. So he, yeah. this is the thing that freaked me out is he says it's heritable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I gotta say, I, I'm not enough of a neurologist to understand this, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a neurological change. It's inheritable despite being not genetic. And at least in theory, like if it's not genetic, at least in theory, presumably this means like if, you know, if there was like a nuclear war or something and we, we reverted entirely to orality, you know, presumably our, over time, you know, evolved our, back. <laughs> our brains would go back. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, justifiably so, cause they would need, they would need that skill. Um, yeah. so anyway, all right, that's enough on that topic. Yes. Um, okay. Let's see. Let's go to, let's go to, these are now, let's go to some more personal <laughs> topics um, or more, more individual level topics. So uh, Gabby Goldberg asks, how do you structure your days and your work in general to avoid burnout? And then related uh, Ishani J. Patel, that starts laughing right off the bat. Um, what does your morning routine look like and how does it set you up for a successful day? And so well, again, let's uh, I'd laugh because it presumes that like I avoid burnout, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I don't think that's true, but um, I know like the things that I find, I mean, there's just general like routine things like wake up, drink some water, exercise, and then, you know, kind of, I like to not do correspondences in the morning. Like I'd rather kind of read, you know, what's ahead of me for the day. Um, 
And then I find it to be very useful, you know, like, and, and you and I are really lucky in that we're able to do the thing that we like doing the best, which is, you know, meeting people who want to change the world and learning about new, their new ideas. I mean, like, and then like helping them do that. I, I can't even imagine doing any other job. <laughs> like I would definitely retire if, if you kicked me out of the firm or if I kicked you out of like it. So getting back in touch with that, like why I am excited about it. And um, I usually go through my calendar and I ask myself that question, like, why am I excited about this meeting? Why am I excited about that meeting? And by the way, if I'm not, I cancel it because, <laughs> yep. you know, it obviously is they don't need me for it at that point. So uh, <laughs> in fact, you might be counterproductive. No, exactly. Because I'm just going to be angry and, and get us a bad reputation and a, a negative score on some system. Right. Yeah. What, what about you? How do you keep yes. getting burnt out? Yeah, so um, so I've had kind of two modes of operation in my life, and you know this firm has kind of kicked me from one end to the second. So for for a long time, I would say I would describe it as just sort of pure fury. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so like to prove uh, yourself. Yeah, no, like the chip yeah. on my shoulder. Th th that's been a challenge for me. Is like, you know, I don't have nearly the chip on my shoulder that I once did. Um, yeah. Although you, you've done a better job at maintaining it, I feel. <laughs> well, I look for mm -hmm. I look for new yeah. motivators. We'll, we'll talk about that, about that in a second. Yeah. But um, yeah, so like for a long time, like how I worked literally was like wake up in the morning, just like work all. Day. Go to sleep and repeat, and so it wasn't <sighs> like it was not it was not structured per se. Um, you know, there's some loose adherence to a calendar, but mostly it was just work all the time, and then when, when there's more time left over, like work some more. Um, and so, you know, if you're sufficiently motivated, you can do that for a while. And probably, maybe you don't want to do that your whole life. Um, you know, with this firm, I would say, well, two things. One is this firm, and then you know, obviously having a family, which I, I did, you know, relatively, relatively late, late versus versus a lot of people. It's it's like okay, like both this this yeah. firm and this business, and then having a family just simply demands more structure. Um, if you want to, like, honestly, if I want to, <laughs> yeah, you, you can't just work all day and pass out. That, that, that's so, really bad for family life for all of those young couples listening. <laughs> Do not recommend. Um, and so what I've done actually is a, is a 180. So I wrote this productivity blog post, I think in 2007. And I basically, it was, I actually sort of lifted it from Arnold Schwarzenegger who claimed to have this as a technique. And basically it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the idea of not having a calendar. Um, yeah. So it's this idea that like your day is wide open and then you just like work on whatever's the most important that day. And, you know, this is like what Warren Buffett says he does, right? You just, it's like, mm -hmm. well, actually Warren Buffett says he does this. He's like, Warren Buffett's thing is like, look, if you call me up and you're like, hey, let's get together next Thursday, you know, my answer is no. Like, I, I don't book yeah. things like in advance. But like, you know, if you do find yourself in Omaha next Thursday, give me a call. Um, and you know, it, you know, when you're, when you're Warren Buffett, you can do that. When you're Schwarzenegger, you can do that. Yeah. Um, and so like, I, I was sort of like trying to push it as far as I could in the other direction, but like, you know, in this job, like basically what I've done is a total 180. And so now I've gone to like total structure. Um, and this goes to the burnout question. So it's like, okay, how could you use total structure not to just drive yourself crazy, but to avoid burnout? Um, and the, the thing that a friend of mine told me, the thing, the thing to basically do is schedule all the stuff that you like to do first. Interesting. Right. And so I, I would think it would be the opposite, but right? that's, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, so this is the thing. This is the psychological yeah. thing. This is the, this is a friend of mine is the psychiatrist. So he, he said, look, he said the, the thing that people have, he's like, well, look, there's, there's some people who just like, you know, are, are on a schedule their whole lives. Right. And, you know, a lot of athletes yeah. are like this. Um, you know, and they just like naturally follow a schedule. And if it wasn't written down, they would follow it anyway. And they're, you know, these are the same people who like balance their checkbook, right? Um, yeah. and, and so some people 
that. But like for the rest of us, including me, like that doesn't happen naturally. And so, and, and so basically what happens is people realize they don't have enough control over their lives and, and things are slipping away. And so they're like, okay, I'm going to now get organized, right? Um, and I'm going to have a, a schedule. And so they, you know, create a calendar and then they, they, they put in the calendar yeah. all of the stuff that they have to do, right? And, and then now they look at that thing and it's like a rock, right? A, you know, hanging from their neck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And then you get, yeah, then you, your whole day is wrecked. You get to yeah. bad state. Yeah, yeah. It's like this every day. And maybe, you know, yeah. I've had this experience. I'm sure you have like every, you know, it's just you wake up in the morning. It's the opposite of what you said. Instead of waking up in the morning and looking at your calendar and getting excited, it's looking at your calendar and being like, oh my God, like what have I done? Right. Um, <laughs> right. I'm ruining my life. I hate my life. I want to skip yeah. it. Well, and there's actually there's actually this thing that actually sleep scientists actually say there's this thing called the revenge effect. Where and mm-hmm. I, I've had this in the past where literally what happens is you're doing things all day long that you have to do, and then you basically go home at night. And you're like, finally, I have time for myself. And then basically what happens is you stay up too late, basically, basically inflicting revenge on yourself, right? <laughs> like, and specifically inflicting revenge on the person who tomorrow morning is going to have to wake up and do it again, right? Um, <laughs> right. And so, and you just like, get, you know, the idea of going to bed just like makes you mad. And so you don't do it. And then, and then you, you, you know, you, then you, your health starts to suffer. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of professionals end up with sleep disorders in part because of this. Yeah. And so it's like, okay. Like that's bad. That's dysfunctional. And so that's, that's why he says, basically you flip it. And so what you do is you, you open up the calendar and, you know, you start from scratch if you're, you're like doing, taking this seriously and then you block out all the stuff you want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, here's the time I'm going to spend with my family, but you know, whatever spouse, kids, dot, dot, dot. Here's the time I'm going to spend by myself. Here's my, here's my, I want to watch TV at night. Here's my hour to be able to watch TV. I want to play yeah. Xbox. I want to go on a walk. I want to, you know, whatever. I want to zone out. Um, hmm. you know, I want to have time that's not scheduled, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's just like boom, 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 boom. Like those things go on the calendar, right? And then yeah. those things are as important as everything else, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, but, you know, that's that's such an important point um about all of this is people get into feeling guilty about the dumbest shit. I feel guilty if I don't take every meeting somebody asks for. Right. Or like, you know, but what the organization needs from you is they need the energy, they need the like the positivity, they need the sharp thinking. They don't need you to like drag your ass through 30 meetings in a row that you don't want to go to. And, you know, people get that mixed up in their mind all the time. And it's particularly, you know, like if you're a CEO, because look, you, you hired all these people, they want to meet with you, you've got customers, they want to talk to you and so forth. And it's, you know, how can you say no to that? Um, but you got to say no to that because they, they don't want that you. <laughs> you right. you know, they, 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 they want the good you. Well, and specifically like where this heads, right, is that you will yeah. be like bleary-eyed, like unhappy, you know, yeah. hungover, sleep-deprived, <laughs> overweight, right? <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, diabetic, like yeah. unhealthy. Right. This, yes. is like, <laughs> this is why this is probably why everybody used to smoke. Um, yeah. Right. Because it's like the one thing they could do that they had control over. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. And then like, yeah, you get in the meeting and somebody's in a foul mood and it's like it has nothing to do with the meeting. It's just that that is meeting number you know 28 for the day. And yeah. Know, yep. 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 No, definitely. <laughs> Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's, it's the, it's the direction of energy. Right. And then, and then basically like my friend says, look, you know, there are no free lunches. And so you've got the 24 hours in the, in, in the day, seven days of the week. And so you fill in all the stuff you want to do. Right. And then you fill in all the stuff you have to do. Right. And then, you know, you probably have, you know, at that point, 15 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. Mm-hmm. 
and so then you need to start prioritizing, right? But then, and then you basically want to prioritize on both sides, right? So you want to yeah. like really focus in on, I'll give you an example. Like, I, you know, I like working out and I like watching TV. Okay. Like those are going to happen together. Right. Yeah. And so like, you know, during the week, I'm just not going to watch. Yeah. I'm just not going to watch TV where I'm not on the treadmill. You know, yeah. like that, that, that's just a trade-off I have to make because it just literally doesn't fit or, or to your point that the trade-off at work, which is like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to take that. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to take that 14th call. Um, yeah. You know, there, there, there is a limit on how much I can do. Um, and then this made me sound incredibly productive and functional. So let me compromise that by saying my morning routine, my morning routine is what I call hot docking. Um, and Ben, you, you've been the recipient of this many times, mm-hmm. which is my morning routine is the opposite of the get up two hours ahead. And like you said, yeah. like, you know, drink some water and meditate and review. Your, like, I don't do any of that. Um, I, <laughs> you just walk right into the meeting. Yes. I, I and, and by the way, work from home <laughs> has been, I've had to watch this cause it's been getting, it gets a little crazy, but like, literally it's yeah. like, Oh, my first call, you know, my first calls at, 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 at 8, 8 AM, my, the alarm is set for seven fifty eight. <laughs> roll out of bed slap the headphones in and off we go um so that's the other side okay uh three more to go so dave r watson asks do you believe in gut instinct and if so can you give an example of when you've used it successfully yes um well it's interesting because there's there's like a scientific um kind of uh explanation where there are a gigantic number of brain cells in your gut so your your gut is actually like fairly smart at doing certain things although i think it's mainly at like controlling digestion things like that but um the way i would describe kind of gut instinct in terms of um you know particularly if you have a job leading an organization uh a lot of it comes down to you're synthesizing all this information from many, many, many places. And, um, and it all kind of accumulates in your nervous system ultimately as a feeling. Um, and you know, when, when I was CEO, like, like CEO of a struggling company, if there was something wrong in the company, I would get physically ill. I'm um, like, if there's something really wrong, like I would automatically get physically, I knew there was something wrong in the company. I could just feel it. It was that kind of bad. It gets so tied to your nervous system. And kind of the one time that I actually remember the most actually was a conversation between you, you and I had Mark over, <laughs> it was a long conversation, but we got an offer to buy Opsware um, for like a little over $4 a share, I think. And at the time, yep. I <laughs> look, we had been through so much, like it would have been like a nice, you know, a nice, like get out of jail free card, almost kind of thing. Yep. But I knew, like, I, I could feel like where we were in the market, what was going on and so forth. And I knew that was like just too low a price to sell it for. Um, but I couldn't, I literally couldn't articulate why. And I remember we had like six conversations about it. Um, but I knew I was like, now we're not going to sell it. We're not even going to entertain that one um, because I know it's wrong. And let, that was, you know, getting back to the co-founder thing. The fact that you had enough trust in my knowledge to not make me articulate it, like got us to right. whatever, 14 and a quarter a share, which is what we ultimately sold it for. But that was hundred percent a good feeling and that I couldn't articulate it, which is kind of a, a little bit, I think my definition of that. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So, yeah. So I think the key word in what you said is synthesis, um, in, in my yeah. view, um, yeah. which is basically like 
gut instinct when it's useful, it's the result of the fact that you have spent, you know, just an enormous amount of time, right, ingesting information, yeah. right? And so this is why, like, as right. you know, ben, Ben's talking about when you're CEO, but like, you know, when you're CEO, you're talking to people all the time about the state of the company, and you have this like composite view that forms, right? That's yep. the result of like a thousand conversations and like a thousand pieces of information. And yeah. like, you know, to your point, like maybe with a gun to your head or something, you could like diagram it all the way out. But like at the end of the day, it's the summation um, yeah. of, of, of all of this information. So, so I think that that's a really big deal. Right. And, and, and so like, you know, for people who, for people who put that level of work in understanding something like, I, you know, their, their instincts cannot, can often be quite good. Um, um, what I see, um, and this is something I try to guard against in myself. I, I don't know how successfully, but I'm trying to, what, what I see is, People who are really good at that, who really have that dialed in for the first, call it 10 or 15 years of their career. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's just because like, it's actually the earlier, earlier conversation we're having. It's, it's like they're working around the clock. They're talking to yeah. everybody. They understand everything, right? Yeah. You can ask them like any question about the field. You can ask them any question about their company, um, you, you know, anything about the technology. Like they understand all of it because they're absorbing all this information, right? And they're, and they're making these gut calls. And, they, and these gut calls, you know, they're not always right, but they're often right. And, you know, yeah. Often, you talk to yeah. successful people and they, they, will, they will credit a lot of this to, to those things. And then what happens at some point is they just like, they stop doing all that work. <laughs> and right? they still use it, and they, but they believe they can still do it. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so now instead of, you know, having the decision based on a thousand conversations or a thousand pieces of data, it's based on 300. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, before <laughs> or three. long or three. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And then, you know, and, and this corresponds with, you know, it's, the, the reason this is so like, this, you know, kind of uh, deceptive when it happens is, you know, this is kind of when people are at their most successful, right? And so this is when like mm-hmm. people have had this like amazing run in a lot and of every, cases. And everybody trusts them. Yeah. Yes. Everybody trusts them. Everybody talks about how smart they are. Everybody's complimenting them all the time. You know, they've, you know, if, if it's, you know, it's in tech or business, they've made money. And then it's like, okay, now they've got hobbies, you know, mm-hmm. now they've got, you know, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're taking a lot more, you know, personal trips and they're, you know, out of the office and, and, you know, they're just not like, they're just not, they've just advanced beyond like just that sheer level of work. Um, yeah. And yeah. And then they, they're still making the gut calls and they're, and now, now that now they just, they literally have no foundation whatsoever for the gut calls and they, and they don't even know it. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause when we, th- this was one of the most challenging parts of um, starting the firm is that there were some things that I had done a lot of work on or, you know, like, well, the first investment I made was, um, or the first you know, that I went on the board of was Okta, of course. And that was something that I knew for 20 years, I knew that category. Like I, I, I'd been working on it forever, you know, since we did LDAP at Netscape. <laughs> and so like, right. it, it was the easiest investment choice ever for me. And then, you know, I, you know, I know people well enough. I, I really like Todd and Freddie, but, you know, that one was too easy. <laughs> And right. so over time, you know, yep. I would say almost every mistake I made in venture capital is exactly what you're saying, which is I didn't have the knowledge I thought I had. And so I had to kind of rebuild the discipline to go, you know, know enough about things to to make an investment or to not like screw up an investment that somebody else was going to make where they had done the work like that. That was a relearning for me um, yep. after, you know, and as you say, like success is your worst enemy. As soon as you start thinking you're successful because of you as opposed to the exact things that you did plus a lot of luck, then you totally ruin yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'll recall we had this, uh, we had, uh, we had this discussion with Jeff Bezos when we were first starting, starting the venture firm. And you you can tell the story, Ben, do you you recall the conversation with Jeff? 
on Are you um, talking about wh- why we went go build another company that yeah that one exactly that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah that one yeah so jeff jeff says well i'll in- I, you know, I'd like to invest in you guys in your venture capital firm, but why aren't you going to just like quit and go start another company? Like you can obviously do that. You're like super successful entrepreneurs. And I said to Jeff, I said, Jeff, if you, for whatever reason, like sold Amazon or, or retired, would you go and like start another company and be CEO? He's like, absolutely not. <laughs> and he said, well, why not? And he said, look, I love the fourth grade, but I'm not going back to the fourth grade. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, you don't want to live your same life over again. It's a, it, was, it was such a funny moment with him. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, that, that problem. Um, okay, uh, second to the last question, penultimate question. Um, Ash Aro asks, what do you suggest to those who will be going to college now um, so that they can be future-proof, um, innovate in futuristic technologies, not just bytes, but also biotech energy, et cetera? And, so, and let's like, Let's double underline there, I think, the, the, this sort of future-proof concept. Like, how do you, what can you get out of college or how do you think about college or skills acquisition at that age such that it's still going to be relevant, you know, and, and useful to you 10, 20, 30 years down the road as you either go into different fields or as the actual, you know, as the topics themselves change? Yeah, so I, you know, I'll go back. I, I, I've, uh, I think I've said this many times in the past, but like the most important thing in college by far is learning how to, think and um and just learning how to think and becoming more sophisticated about you know understanding many more ideas um you know what they mean what their impact is and getting you know then the beautiful thing about college is you're with so many people from so many different backgrounds you can get so many perspectives and then you know taking that ability to learn into the future with you and that's that's the only way you can future proof because things are going to be very different um, I, I also think, you know, like people think of computer science incorrectly, you, you know, and part of it has just been, let's well, like learn to code. And it's like, well, that's a little bit of it, but I would think of com- information science in general as kind of like, it's a tool like mathematics. Um, and so it's very useful because you can apply it to so many things and the principles are applied to so many things. And so, you, you know, you should think about learning things um, that are in that class that are tools that you can apply to every field. Um, and certainly, you know, mathematics and computer science can be applied to anything. Uh, and, 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 you know, like with, with really interesting new results if they haven't been applied before. So that kind of thing is also very valuable. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and the, the, yeah, people may know this is one of the reasons why I was confident in writing this, this essay called software reads the world um, almost, almost 10 years, I think 10 years ago now. Yeah. And yeah. Why, why I was, why I was kind of so confident pegging things on software. And it's, it's literally this process of like, well, I, we just saw it with the Moderna vaccine as an example. Right. So mm-hmm. like, you know, prior vaccines, like try to develop a vaccine for COVID the old fashioned way. Like you have to get a culture, if you get a sample of the thing, you have to culture it. You have to try to develop a, you know, sort of a defanged version of it or diluted form of it to turn into a vaccine. You know, that's kind of how vaccine developments happen. And with the Moderna vaccine, they got, they, they literally never had, I don't think, the live virus early on. They just had the genetic. <laughs> yeah, 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 they, they did not. They didn't, they, they didn't have they it in the lab, yeah. Yep, exactly. So they, <laughs> Which they, is a good thing, too, because it's been known yeah. to escape from the lab. <laughs> yes, especially, especially if, yes, I, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so what, what they got was they got the genetic code, which is, which is data. Um, emailed to them um, and from China, and they were able to copy. It basically, I think it's like it's, I'm sure it's more complicated than this, but they copy and pasted out of the email 
right? And like put it into their program um, that, you know, drives their manufacturing process. And two days later, they had the vaccine, right? And, and you know, obviously a far more effective vaccine than they would have had the old-fashioned way. And so it's like, you know, that process, you know, it's just an example of like a lot of biological science now is this very interesting intersection of computer science and engineering on the one hand with kind of, you know, wet, you know, kind of classical wet biology on the other hand. Um, and so, you know, and this, this, this is leading towards a future of basically like, you know, vaccine, you know, vaccine development and therapeutic development literally happening on laptops. Right. Which yeah. is like a, which is, you know, which is just like an incredibly wild yeah. concept, right. To be able to, pro, you know, CRISPR, the ability to be able to program right. genetics, you know, synthetic, synthetic biology. And so you've got this thing where all of a sudden like computer science is this lever into this whole other field. Um, yeah. and so, and the same thing is true in material science, the same thing is true in, you know, in, in increasingly in chemistry, like there's, there's, there's all these different, you know, economics, um, all these other fields, um, even by the way, like analysis of even in the humanities, like analysis of music or analysis of language, it's increasingly computational. Um, and so I, I, I do feel like we have this kind of magic, <laughs> I sometimes call it, it's like alchemy, like almost philosopher's yeah. stone. Right. The yeah. legend of the philosopher's stone was this thing that tur turns lead into gold. And we never <laughs> we never found that. But we did find this thing that basically turns code into things that happen in the real world um, or, you know, in, like quite literally like ideas that you type into a computer yeah. that like pop out the other end in the form of, a of like a vaccine. Um, and so, like, I, I think like that's going to be a really good bet uh, across many fields uh, for the next 30 years. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the mistake we made. We called hmm. it computer science. That was the dumbest right. name ever because right. people think it's tied to the machine. Right. right. Where it's a completely abstract set of concepts for describing and understanding the world and changing the world and programming the world. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. So, so yeah, exactly that. Um, okay, good. So, and then we are at 819, so we're right on track. So let's go to the last question. So our friend uh, Wakas Ali um, asks, um, has Mark gotten you, Ben, into trouble because of his sense of humor? <laughs> What's the key to building the kind of co-founder partner relationship you both enjoy? And of course, I have to immediately challenge the question um, and the assumption that my sense of humor has gotten us into more trouble than your sense of humor. <laughs> my sense of humor has definitely please gotten us into trouble as well. But well, please, you're, just, you're, please, please discuss. I feel like your sense of humor has gotten you into trouble. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> I think maybe my sense of humor has gotten us into trouble. Like, see, the problem with your sense of humor is that it's all like sarcasm. And, 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 but you've got like a sarcasm poker face. So nobody knows that it's sarcasm. <laughs> and, and if it's on Twitter, they definitely don't know it's sarcasm. <laughs> definitely do not know. I can confirm that. And, 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 yeah. and yours, Ben? Well, and then mine, because my sense of humor always evolves around saying things that are unacceptable to say <laughs> in polite society. And so it's it's, it's just, yes, they're both problematic and they're very, very problematic. Yes, exactly. Um, so um, yeah, I, I will just tell you, like, I, I will say, I will say this, whenever Ben says something completely inflammatory, um, and it's, um, and it's usually quite funny, but completely inflammatory, and there's blowback, my immediate reaction is, oh, thank God, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it happens. It definitely and happens I'm just, and I'm literally, I'm literally, like, so grateful that it's not my fault this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, well, that's a nice thing, because you never get mad at me, because you're just happy. <laughs> And I, and I know I, I will do it in the future. And then, um, okay, the more serious part of the question, now, what's the key to building the kind of co-founder co partner relationship that we enjoy? And what do you think? Well, I mean, I think the big thing is that we don't, 
like we care about each other's feelings, I guess, but not enough to <laughs> prevent us from saying anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so I right. like, like we're both okay. I mean, to me, the, the real key is that we can argue and hurt each other's feelings a lot and not, um, and not have that affect the relationship at all, which is, you know, it's a difficult thing to do. And it's a trust that you build over a long period of time, but it's the only way you can actually learn from each other is if you challenge each other and like, not on some whatever bullshit theoretical concept or something, but on like a core, core thing, like Ben, the way you're running the firm is you're fucking the whole thing up and like people aren't communicating correctly and we're going to run right into a wall. Like if, if you can't say that to me, um, then the relationship's just not that valuable because who the hell else is going to say it to me, right? And that's the that's the magic of co-founders, right. and like you know, and I can by the same token, I can tell you like you know you're you're fucking all mad about this thing and like you're full of shit. You like you don't even know what's going on, and right. and you have to be able to hear that, yeah. uh, and then and then we get stronger every day. Um, but if you like if you've got a happy relationship or you've got a relationship where you don't like each other, like neither of those work, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be where you really, really interact on controversial things that you both have strong feelings about and can get to an answer. Like that's, that, that's a relationship that's got value. Yep. And then I, I'd add two things, or at least here's, here's how I think about it. So, um, and this is how I advise people when they're they're thinking about having this you know kind of partnership or having like a you know a, a, like a founder partnership or something. Um, basically, it's like the way I think about it is it like the partnership has to be more important to me than being right. And, and what I mean by that is like yeah. there are all these issues that come up, um, and there are all these opinions that I have. Right, I've got an opinion on everything. I, I always think I know what to do. Um, and like everybody, you know, you know, I love expressing. God knows, I love expressing my opinion. So like. And I love getting in my way, right? Like I, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a control freak as much as anybody else. And so it's like, and, and by the way, I'm convinced that I'm right, right? Like, cause like, you know, I, I've been, you know, doing this for a long time and I've, you know, made some... <laughs> and you spend a lot of time talking to yourself and you talk yourself into it. <laughs> I do, exactly right. I have a very vigorous debate in my head and I end up agreeing with myself. Um, and so it's like, I'm right. And so I, you know, I show up and, you know, I, I, I still do, I show up in the discussion. It's like, okay, I'm right. I know what to do, but it's like, okay, like what's more important? like being right and, and i say being right, right because it's, it's it, the way the the, light, the lighter way of saying this is what's more important making the decision or the partnership um mm-hmm. but it's easy in the abstract to say oh the other person should make that decision it's much harder to let the other person make the decision when you know that you're right yeah right yeah it's, yeah it's, that's it's, a tricky thing yeah, yeah right and so it's that feeling of like i actually know what the right thing to do here is and he thinks he does but i actually know and like he disagrees with me and like i have to get my way because i'm right Right. And of course, what's yeah. happening is, he, you know, you, he, he, the other person is saying like the exact same thing to themselves. Right. Yeah, yeah. For the yep. exact same reasons. Right. And I mean, and, you know, and then, of course, it's in the heat of the moment. So who knows who's right? You, you won't find out until later. So so the way I think about it basically is like you, you, the, the, the partnership has to be more important than being right, which means basically at least here's, here's what I try to do is you have to you have to seek out opportunities, opportunities to let the other person be right um, and, and and to make the call. Um, and, and the way I think about it, honestly, is I think about it, it's, it's almost, and it's, I don't mean it like, I don't mean it mechanically like this, but it's a little bit like it's, it's banking trust is how, how I think about it, which is like yeah. the more decisions I can let you make, 
like the more you'll trust me that if I really have a strong point of view, right, someday, and if I really put my foot down, mm-hmm. right, that it's that it's not just me being me, but like this must be at an incredibly unusual level of severity, um, because you know there's another thousand times where we were discussing serious topics, and I was like, well, look, here's what I think, but let's go with what you think. Yeah, no, I think that um, I think that part's true, definitely too. Um, you do need like a tremendous amount of mutual respect to pull that off of course right. because otherwise it'd just drive you crazy um well you, know, you can't somebody fuck up the whole company yeah right well that's the thing you can't right the thing that would kill that is if you then try to do the accounting right after the fact yeah. and yeah. so like if you try to keep track of the number of times when you defer to the other person and it turned out they thought they're right and it turned out they're wrong and you're sitting there like two years later and you're like well shit like that's happened like yeah, 20 yeah. times like yeah, yeah. like that then you're i think basically it's over yeah you, you know and on it's funny and on investment decisions in particular um that's the most dangerous shit mm-hmm. right actually uh, this is the annie annie duke book uh, thinking and that's yeah. what she uses the, the yeah. word uh, she introduces the term resulting yeah. right which is evaluating decisions after the fact by their outcomes um as opposed to the process you put into them. yeah yeah and, yep. and making sure that process is right yeah that's right yeah um yeah so i think that's the i think that's the um yeah, so I would I would I would nominate that as as, as the thing, and I would just say like it's a, just observing other people like that's that's a that's that's a hard thing like it's it's hard it's hard on the ego, um you know we're in this world like we're all high ego people and so it is hard on the ego and you have to like it, it it's a level of commitment to the partnership that has to supersede the ego which is really hard. Yeah, that's hard, and then just finding somebody who you can deal with at that level who you can tell who you trust them enough that the number of mistakes that you they make you're going to be okay with right 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 and then the final thing i'd say is the thing that ben said earlier which is like you probably won't really know if it's one if it's like an actual like solid partnership until it really goes through serious stress (laughs) right and you you go you like when you really right when you really yeah. go through the shit, like, and it's got to be something like really serious, like something existential to the company or to the, you know, to the effort or something, you know, to, to your lives. Like, you know, who yeah, can like I a actually. Yeah, com right? crash and three right. layoffs and, <laughs> you, you know, going public with $2 million in trailing revenue, that type of shit. That kind of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but now the good news is like going through the shit, like number one, you, 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 you discover a lot about the other person and that that's incredibly illuminating and gives you the foundation. But the other is like, it, it, you know, if you go through enough shit together, it's like the new shit you go through, this isn't that bad in comparison. Um, yeah, exactly. And so you kind of both get calibrated and, and you, you both kind of calm down, um, which is well, also. And you also know, like, you know, the thing that happens when things go bad is paranoia, right? Like, it's right. like, okay, are they, you know, is the other person, you know, going to fuck it all up? Are they trying to fuck me? Are they going to ruin my reputation? Are they going to like, you know, all that kind of thing goes through your head. But, you know, if you've been through that, then you know where that comes out. And so that, that, and the paranoia is as bad as the actual problem, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. Benjamin, it is all right. 28 PM. We have nailed the timing. Thank you so much to the all people right, who asked all the questions. Please keep the questions coming and we will see you all back here um, in exactly six days and 23, 23 hours. Yeah. Thank you everybody. Great questions. And, and thank you so much for listening. Okay. Fantastic. Have a great night.